6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 22 and 23. Let's look at a dimension to genealogies. Every Christmas, we worship, we praise God for the birth of Jesus Christ. And every Christmas, we probably read the story in Matthew and in Luke. And most of us may miss some key points. In the interest of time, I won't dig all this up. You guys will remember. You guys and gals will remember that when the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, he promises her that her child will sit on the throne of David. That's pretty exciting. If she had done her homework in Jeremiah, she might have wondered how he was going to pull that off. Okay? There's only one way he can do it. With a virgin birth. That's the only way he can do it, is with a virgin birth. I'm not suggesting that the virgin birth is because of the blood curse. There's lots of other reasons why a virgin birth was in God's mind. Because he said that back in Genesis. Because he speaks of the Messiah as the seed of the woman. That phrase in Hebrew implies Genesis, i.e. no male sperm. It's the seed of the woman. And so that's hidden even in the, in the structure of the Hebrew. In Genesis, he knows the end from the beginning, and when he pronounces this blood curse on Jeconiah, probably in the privacy of his own counsel, God can chuckle because Satan can't figure this out. He's got a surprise coming, okay? Now, what am I talking about? Turn to Matthew chapter 1. You all, when you get the, when you open your New Testament, you're as a new Christian, you start reading Matthew, many, many of your friends say, well, skip the first 18 verses because you don't want to really wade through that genealogy. And it may be good advice for someone who's first getting acquainted with the Scripture. But Matthew is a Levi. And I'm just going to do a little review. We covered some of this when we studied Matthew, but I'm going to just re review it for those of you that, for whom this might be uh, new material. Gen uh, for Matthew chapter 1, it starts out, Matthew's a Levi, a Jew. He's anxious to prove that Jesus Christ was the Mashiach of Israel, had legal title to the throne of David. He starts, as any Jew would, from Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brethren, Judah begot Perez, and so forth. And he goes right on through the genealogy. There's some very interesting people in this genealogy. Contrary to most Jews of Jewish genealogy, there's four women in here. There's Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and, and so on. He even gets down into verse 11. He says, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brethren about the time that they were carried away into Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shedeon. And he goes on. Jeconiah has offspring. Right? And he finally gets down here to uh, verse uh, 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. What's his point? That the offspring, that, that Joseph's legal son had legal title to the throne of David. Now, when we go back here, you'll notice, uh, I forgot to point another thing. When you get here to verse 6, 
Jesse begot David, the king, and David be the king begot Solomon of her that had become the wife of Jeriah. In other words, Solomon was born of Bathsheba. The first child died, but the second child, the first born, you know, one that lived was, was Solomon, and Solomon was the king, right? So the Solomonic line goes, goes from Abraham through David, through Solomon, down through all these kings, Hezekiah, and so forth, and uh, good ones and bad ones, mostly bad ones, and finally uh, through Jeconiah, down through Jacob, who begot Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, and so forth. The legal title of Jesus Christ, making him legally eligible for the throne of David through uh, Joseph. That's all pretty interesting. That's fine. When we get to Luke, we'll skip ahead to look at Luke. Now, Luke was not, uh, you know, preoccupied with all of this. Luke was a physician. He was interested in Jesus Christ's humanity. He really didn't have a lot of focus on the Jewishness that Matthew emphasizes. And we find he doesn't open his gospel with a genealogy, but he does include one in chapter 3. Now, uh, Luke happens to go backwards. He starts and goes backwards. I want to skip to the end of it, so because we're, we're familiar with going from the top down. He ends, in verse, in verse 38, he ends where you and I might begin. He doesn't start with Abraham, because Luke's not interested in Jewishness. He's interested in his humanity, and he starts with the first man, Adam. He describes Adam as a son of God. He is in a different sense. And if we read backwards, if you will, Adam and then Seth and Enos, and if you read the genealogy starting with uh, verse 38 of chapter 3 and go backwards to, to you do it the way you, you, know, you and I think, I think most of us think top down. So you go through from Adam, and he gives you the whole genealogy through Genesis. And uh, as you uh, go through all this stuff, you'll find that he gets to Abraham in verse 34 and down to through uh, Perez and so on, 33, 32. Uh, he gets to... Um, Verse 31, we have David, and the son of David that Luke focuses on is not Solomon, but Nathan. So if you were plotting this, Luke starts not with Abraham, but Adam, takes it all the way through Abram, and from Abraham down through David, you'll find them essentially the same. When, you, when he gets to Solomon, though, he takes a turn. He doesn't go through Solomon. He goes through Nathan. And then he go, and you follow that through, and he ends up giving you the genealogy, because from David on, his genealogy is different. There's a couple of names that sound the same, but they're in different generations or coincidences. Different genealogy from David on. Matthew takes the regal line through Solomon on, through Jeconiah, the blood curse, to Joseph. Luke takes it through the natural line, because where he's headed is Mary. And what you have here is the genealogy of Mary because uh, he was the son of Heli, and, and, uh, and, and in the language here, and you have to get into the background, you'll discover that what we really have here is that, see, it was Joseph who was the son-in-law, and it, it's the, the whole idea is that Heli, it was the father of Mary. And so we have here the genealogy, um, the natural genealogy. Now when we go back, if we took the trouble to read the promise that God gave David, you'll discover that he says, I will give you, I will... The Messiah will be of the house and lineage of David. And when you read that, you and I think that's a pun or a tautology or two equivalent words for the same thing. They're not quite the same thing. Jesus Christ is of the house of David, legally entitled to the throne. 
He's also of the lineage of David, but by a different path. And so when we stand back, every time you see a Christmas card, every time we, we for whatever reason, bring to mind the virgin birth and the nativity that we celebrate uh, you know, in December of each year, incorrectly in December, but that's neither here nor there, um, every time you think of that, I want you to recognize that in every detail, God works a miracle. And I sort of see him probably chuckling to himself at thwarting the expectations of the counsels of Satan by end-running his own curse in, in Jeremiah 22, because the curse is of no consequence to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, it means he's the only guy eligible for the take the throne of David. Why? Because the royal line ends here, but by a supernatural birth. And I think that's kind of fun. That's kind of exciting. Chapter 23, Jeremiah 23. Let's take the first six verses. Je Jeremiah 23. Woe be unto the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Now, he's talking here to the kings and the leaders. He's not talking about shepherds that be in the field. It's a, it's a, a figure of speech referring to their leaders, to their kings. Woe be unto the shepherds of, who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, against the shepherds who, who feed my people, ye have scattered my flock, driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries to which I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them, who shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Boy, there's a lot here. These shepherds have scattered his flock, okay? And I, he says, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings. So they are not, they, they um, um, the kings have been unfaithful, the people have been unfaithful to the Lord, and so they are going to reap their just rewards. Now we're, we're coming into the Easter season, and most of us may have an occasion to see one of the dramatic renderings of Easter week. And I want you in your ears to hear the echo of the people when they're out there and Pilate is up there with Jesus Christ and saying, Behold your king. And the people say, We have no king but Caesar. That's fulfilling this. You want Caesar for a king? You got him. 38 years later, the same length of time that they wandered in the wilderness, nominally 40, but technically 38 years. 38 years later, the Roman legions, under the directions of Caesar, slaughter a million six hundred thousand inhabitants in Jerusalem and level the city. And that starts the diaspora, where they indeed are scattered throughout the world and have been not just in Babylon. Here Jeremiah's view, or the Lord through Jeremiah, is much broader than just the Babylonian captivity. They're going to get their thurs. It won't be just the Babylonian captivity that's in view here. How do I know? 
because of verse 3, when he repairs, when he heals the harm. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of Babylon and Chaldea. No, he says, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries. Really? That doesn't sound like Nebuchadnezzar to me. When Cyrus the Persian conquers Babylon and releases them to go home, that sounds to me like they came out of one country. Out of all countries to which I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. God predicts that they will be regathered, not once but twice. In case I haven't pointed out to you recently, let me remind you once again of Isaiah chapter 11, which if you haven't marked, you might. Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to get in here anyway to look at verse 1, but I'll come back to that so you can keep your finger here when we're through with this one thing. But I want to highlight for you verses 11 and 12. Remember Isaiah 11, 11. It's one of the most exciting verses for you and I to behold, because this is out of the book of Isaiah. It shall come to pass in that day. What day? The day when he once again has his hand upon Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Alam, and from Shinar, that's, that is Babylon, and from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea, everywhere. That includes the United States. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's not the Babylonian return. It's the second return. The first one is from Babylon. The second one is the one you and I have been witnessing in our lifetime since May 14th of 1948. And in spades since the Six-Day War. June of 1967. We're going to talk very much. Both of those dates are anticipated precisely by our Lord in his prophecies. We'll get into that later in the book of Jeremiah. We have no king but Caesar, they yell to Pilate. Well, that's what their view is. He gave it to them. They had no king but Caesar. You and I have a much better king than Caesar. Praise God. Now it says, they, he will set up shepherds over them and feed them, and they shall fear no more, and neither be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. That hasn't happened yet. That is going to happen. There are going to be 12 guys sitting upon, the ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Who are those 12 guys? The apostles. And don't count Paul among them. For years I made the mistake of treating Paul as one of the 12, saying when they cast lots for Matthias, that was too bad because it really was Paul. I didn't realize he's the apostle to the Gentiles. The 12 apostles, as they're presented biblically, are going to rule over the 12 tribes, Matthew 19, verse 28. You remember that because we just did Matthew recently. But that's, of course, millennial, it's yet future. Let's keep moving here. We're down to verse 5. Two verses here that are really kind of fun. Behold, the days come. This phrase, by the way, the days are coming, is an interesting phrase. It occurs no less than 15 times. In the book of uh, Jeremiah, the days are coming, and you can you, and and this phrase links linguistically to the whole a whole thread of prophecies that started Genesis three fifteen where we talk about the seed. We'll take you through Second Samuel seven where we have the son that is the son of David, 
and to all the way through to the servant that's in Isaiah chapters 42 through 53, a whole sweep of messianic prophecy, starting with Genesis 3.15, going through the Davidic covenant of uh, 2 Samuel 7, all the way to the servant prophecies that Isaiah so eloquently describes from chapters 42 and climaxing all the way up to uh, Isaiah 53, sometimes called the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. But anyway, the day shall come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David, what? A righteous branch, strange word, semach, the righteous branch. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth, obviously by contrast to what's been going on in Judah. Verse 6, and in his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness, or more precisely, Yahweh Tzitkanu, or Jehovah Tzitkanu. I don't know how you and I are going to pronounce that. It's Hebrew. But uh, the Lord our righteousness. Now, incidentally, there's a lot going on here that you and I miss because we don't, you know, if we're not Hebrew. Uh, Zedekiah, the king, when Jeremiah is writing this, Zedekiah is translated, the Lord is my righteousness. But of course, it's a false name. He really wasn't. That was just his name that he was given, but it's a false name. The Lord will be called the Lord our righteousness, Tzovetzitkanu, which is different than Zedekiah, but it, it, is, it, means it will be a name earned, appropriate, valid, truthful, in contrast to the false label of Zedekiah. Now, Verse 5, in effect, says, Behold the king. Okay. And I'm, I'm reminded for some reason, the Holy Spirit puts it on my heart, to remember, to again contrast the scene before the house of Judah, where Pilate is standing there saying, Behold the man. He'd been scourged. Pilate was a classic administrator trying to find a way to get off the hook without being uh, 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 disloyal and ineffective for his, in his stewardship for Caesar as, a, as the Roman administrator. But you can clearly see from his actions, he was trying to find a cop-out, some way to get off the hook. And he assumed that maybe the passion of the people would yield. Behold the man. God says, Behold the man. Verse 5, Behold the days come, saith the Lord. I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and so forth. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely in his name, whereby he shall be called, shall be Jehovah Tzitkanu. Before I leave this word branch, it's interesting that that's one of the most important prophetic titles of Jesus Christ. I, I wanted just to highlight quickly Isaiah chapter 4. Those of you that have tabs can follow me. I'll try to go through this relatively painfully. Uh, Isaiah, a uh, pain, painlessly. And, uh, yes, right. Maybe I was right the first time, right? Isaiah 4, uh, verse 2. Isaiah says, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and splendid for those who are escaped of Israel. It shall come to pass that he who was left in Zion and he who remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, and everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem, and uh, so forth. Okay, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of burning. 
And he goes on with that stuff. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3. You can skip ahead, keep your... In Zechariah chapter 3. It's been a while since we went through the Zechariah study, so I'll, but I'll still presume that this is, is, is a review. Um, in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Hear now, O Joshua, here he's talking to the priest there, uh, the high priest, Thou and thy fellows who sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the, righteous, the, the branch. Here again, the title is introduced prophetically. And there's also a phrase in verse 9 that would be strange to you when you read it in Revelation, unless you're an Old Testament student, because in verse 9 it says, Behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. The word, the concept of a stone as an idiom for Jesus Christ doesn't surprise us, because what, 1 Corinthians 10 and lots of other places. But here it says, One stone shall have seven eyes. In Revelation, you see Jesus Christ having seven eyes. That's a strange idiom for us to use. It doesn't mean literally like you try to draw it. That's a, a, a Jewish expression meaning complete visibility. You see what's going on. Seven eyes, and behold, I will engrave the engraving, and on he goes. And in Zechariah chapter 6, we also have um, verse 12. As speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man, there's that phrase again, whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. That's uh, Zechariah 3.8, and Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule upon the throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of the peace shall be between them both. And that's a very key phrase there. He is a king and a priest. Unique. Nobody in, in the Bible is a king and a priest, except Melchizedek by type, and Jesus Christ in terms of his office. And you and I are prophesied to be kings and priests because we are in him. But that's a very, very special situation that uh, the Scripture emphasizes just as that, as being quite unique, quite unique. Well, um, I think we got down to verse 7. In back to Jeremiah 23, verse 7, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That's an interesting label. All through the Scripture, we have the Lord, God of Israel, identified as the guy that saved them out of Egypt crossing the Red Sea and all that. Again and again and again, when they're praising God or identifying themselves with him, he's the God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The Exodus is his, his identity, his, his, his uh, rather theatrical demonstration of who he is, right? It says here, the days will come, and that's not going to be the big thing, but rather, verse 8, the Lord liveth who brought up and who led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, now, is he talking about the return from Babylon? Can't tell yet, but we get the next phrase. And from all countries to which I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. That his identity will be bringing them back into Israel out of all the countries. What, a few days ago in the paper, we read the excitement that under Gorbachev, the ratio of Jews that are ex allowed to exit Soviet has increased by tenfold. As part of his, uh, his Glasnost, the whole idea of the liberalization, he's allowing more Jews to return because he believes if he shows um, leniency to, the, to Judaism that the Jewish interest in the United States may also uh, lobby for a relieving of the trade policies with the Soviet Union. And he's very open about that. That's the way he describes that. And that's quite—it's been in the paper. But how interesting it is that whatever technique God uses— 
He is allowing increasing numbers by a factor of 10 to 1 now. Of Jew there still aren't large numbers because they were so tightly held before, but the numbers are 10 to 1 larger now. Uh, like not not 1,000 a year, but 10,000 a year. It's to give you a rough feeling for the numbers. Are being allowed to emigrate back to Israel. And I read that and it blows me away because I come back here to Jeremiah 8, uh, 23, 8. But the Lord liveth, the Lord is going to be identified as the Lord who, not, not that brought him out of Egypt. That's old news. But the one that has regathered his people in the land out of all countries, out of the north, even the north country. What's north of Israel? Russia. You betcha. Ezekiel 38 make, identifies Russia that way. He also identifies it by the tribal names, but he also, from the uttermost parts of the north. Don't be confused about their invaders because all invaders invade Israel from the north, like the Babylonians did too. But from the uttermost part of the north, that refers to the Soviet Union and all of that. And we've been through that. If you haven't get the tapes on Ezekiel 38, you'll have a wall. Um, if you're the kind that worries a lot and doesn't sleep at night, you might want to pass it because it's awfully close. You can either study it in Ezekiel on the tape or just wait a little while. Okay, we're down. We're, we've, we've made it amazingly enough to verse nine. I'm apprehensive because I'd like to get to verse forty before the evening's over because there's lots of exciting things forthcoming. Uh, but that that'll work out just fine. Anyway, my heart, verse nine, my heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man whom wine hath overcome, because the Lord and because of the words of His holiness. For the land is full of adulterers, and because of swearing, the land mourneth, and the, pl the pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up, and their course is evil, their force is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. In my house, that is even in the temple. What Jeremiah is going to be going on with here, and I'll keep reading, but to give you the flavor of it sort of in advance, he is starting to denounce the false prophets. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.